Welcome to this Food Thing podcast. This is the place where we talk about our relationship with food, whether it is friend or foe, easy or less so, and how it affects our behavior. Here's today's episode. Welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Courtney Raspin. Dr. Courtney is a chartered and registered psychologist specializing in eating disorders. After 10 years working in a major NHS hospital, she founded Altum Health, a private therapy-led practice dedicated to helping its clients live fuller and more meaningful lives. Courtney has over 20 years of experience working in mental health and is passionate about helping people develop healthier relationships with food and their bodies. Courtney, welcome to this Food Thing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's my absolute pleasure. Um, we're aware that it might be a bit noisy, so but we're going to continue, aren't we? We're going to we're going to carry on and see what happens. <laughs> we will do the best we can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I always ask my first question: uh, food, friend or foe? Ah, uh, for me, it's most definitely friend. Definitely. And can you talk a bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, I don't know if food has always been friend, but certainly in my life right now on the um, upper end of my 40s, uh, I have come to develop a relationship with food that um, is joyful and sensual and fulfilling and stimulating. Um, and I think that it is one of life's primary and biggest pleasures. Uh, yeah, so for me, most certainly I seek, I seek joy in food and I seek all of those things in pleasure and stimulation. Um, it, you just can never ever end when it comes to discovery in food. And uh, I just think it's such a metaphor, the way that we feed ourselves. Uh, it's such a metaphor for the way that we live our lives. 100%. Have you so you say in your upper end of your 40s? Mm. It hasn't always been like that. No, it hasn't. Um, I, I think I've always loved food. Mm. Um, you know, as a I, I have you know, you have these food memories, don't you? Yeah. As as children, and I have some joyful food memories. Uh, but I think my relationship with food was conflicted, um, particularly in my early teens and 20s. Um, and it, while I enjoyed food, there was a part of me that didn't allow myself to nourish myself fully and enjoy food without guilt or without shame. Um, and do, you know, do you know where that came from? Certainly. I, well, I think so. There are a number of, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh -huh. which is a very image focused society. I also grew up a dancer um, oh. and, and I grew up doing a bit of modeling and, and whatnot. And so I think being in those industries brings an automatic focus to the body. Yeah. And I think I was also, well, I know I was also raised in a family where physical appearance was can was valued i wouldn't say well potentially above other things um but it was certainly highly prized and um you know my mother was weight conscious as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so all of those things i think came together to provide fertile soil <laughs> for the kind of relationship that that i that i had earlier on with food did you develop an eating disorder no i was never diagnosed with an eating disorder but I certainly had disordered eating. 
And okay. uh, I would say that I was thinner than I my natural body uh, right. should 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 be, and that um, I certainly thought about food a lot and was never satisfied with my body. And I did get quite thin at one point, um, quite thin. And if I had continued on that trajectory, I most certainly would have been diagnosed with anorexia. So what stopped you? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) What stopped me? Well, I think a few things came together to stop me. And it isn't as if one day I was not okay and then the next day I was. It was and will probably always continue to be a process. Um, What I will say is that I... I switched my major from dance to, uh, well, medicine actually, and then to psychology. Uh, But I think that that was a good move for me because my body was never going to, unless I worked very hard. And what I mean by that was kept my weight below where my natural set point weight is. Yeah. Yeah. Which would continue disordered thinking around eating and food. Uh, I was never going to have the body that was going to be successful in dance, especially at that time. But were, yeah? you, were you consciously aware of that at that time? Or was this in hindsight? Because that sounds very measured, mature. And my experience of wanting to be a dancer, an actor, anything like that, really, is that when you give it up, it's either it happens through injury and it can also be traumatic because you have to give up all the, your fantasies. Yes, yes. I mean, your question is, was I aware of this at the time or is this something that I've come to understand in retrospect? Yeah. Um, Joe, you know, I think I've, I've, the clarity of the understanding has come in retrospect. Okay. But I do believe that there was a part of me that knew. Um, and the right. part of me that made that change. Yeah. Um, you know, my mom also said to me, which I think was extremely helpful in making this decision. Uh, you know, she said, if you are going to choose to be a performer, do it because it gets you out of bed in the morning, that yeah. you love it. Do it because the, the mere the, the mere act of performing gives you joy because actually making it, so to speak, takes a lot of luck. There are a lot of very talented people out there. And do you love it enough to always be in the chorus? Do you love it enough to always, you know, perhaps never have fame? Yeah. Does it do? And, and I think the answer to that was, I love it, but maybe I don't love it enough. And so I think that was also influential in, in making that decision. Um, but I think the, the kind of the physical side of it, I somehow knew that looking at myself in a mirror all day long at that age was not healthy for me. Okay. Okay. I absolutely understand that. And you do, you have to love it uh, mm, above mm. everything else and you have to want to share it. This, yeah. Yes. And, but that's a whole other conversation. It is. It is. So I think there was that. Yeah. Um, I also think that I, um, I went to therapy Right. <laughs> and I had a lovely, wonderful therapist who kind of helped me help me see the wood from the trees a little bit um, and encouraged me on my path to becoming a therapist. My mother's a psychologist or was a psychologist. She's passed. My sister's a psychiatrist. So mental health is in my family. Um, 
Uh, but I, I think that she kind of steered me off the path and, and helped me understand some of my patterns of relating to myself and other people. Helped me see how much I overvalued my appearance with regards to who I was as a person. So that was useful. Um, and I also think I started to just surround myself with people who held different values to the uh, people I was hanging out with before. Right. Okay. And, and all of those things slowly allowed me to fill my life with things that weren't about how I looked and weren't, uh, and also, you know, I found my calling with regards to my uh, academics and, and my career, which filled me with, you know, self-confidence. And, and I think just over time, I've been able to do that work and, and just leave that part of me much behind. So I'm, so let's say mid twenties, mm. are you a friend? Is, is food, is food good and positive and nourishing in your mid twenties? Yes. I think it's well on its way to be. Ah, I, right. I was married at 25. Okay. Okay. And I think love is extremely healing as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love is tremendously healing. And I, I married, I married a man who didn't know you know, an almond croissant from a rice cake, you know, he just <laughs> had no idea what a calorie was, no idea. He's Australian, very laid back. Um, you know, and I remember when I first moved here to the UK from the Los, from Los Angeles, oh, I was from Texas, actually. I lived in Texas for oh, eight years. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was my first experience of it being very, very cold in the winter. <laughs> and, and, you know, one puts on a little bit of weight in the winter here, at least yeah. this one does. Yeah. And, me too. and he kind of looked at me and he said, babe, you're a little bit like a bear in hibernation here in England. <laughs> he says, gets cold. You got to eat a little more, drink a little more, put on another little layer. And in the spring and the summer when you get better, he just has a very normal relationship to food and his body. And I think being fully loved by somebody like that was, was refreshing and a re-education for me. And I do credit that with helping me come further down my journey. Yeah, that's yeah. very healing and just to be accepted. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Transformative. Mm. Okay, so, um, so you came here and did you... Yeah, because do you know what? This is the first interview. Let me have a look at the clock. So we've done 10 minutes. Huh. And we're kind of done and dusted on how you are with food. We know that you're brilliant with food. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this, is, this is like you're one of the first people. I'm sure there's been a couple of other people. So that bit's done. That's great. And great. I'm so happy to have someone on who's got, who has a very positive, hopeful, nourishing relationship with food and loves it. And a sensual, a sensual relationship. And we can oh. talk about that a little bit later. Sure. Yes. But, um, when you, when you, so when you came to the UK and you came to London, yes. did you work for the NHS immediately? I did. Well, I moved over here. It took about a year for kind of the whole kind of figure out like where the qualifications sit. Yeah. And my first major job was in an NHS eating disorder service. Right. Um, and it was spectacular. Um, in what I, way? I was very, very lucky to be part of a huge team. I think it was like 30 member team, multidisciplinary team. It was a day patient and outpatient service. Um, it was cutting edge. We had a, a wonderful consultant. Um, I had great supervision. Um, you know, 
from being from America, we don't have the NHS. And I was just amazed at how wonderful this institution was and how mm. much I was able to learn. Um, I really learned the language of eating disorders. Um, Which I is? The <laughs> well, no, when I say the language, it's the way people talk about it. Ah, right. Okay, sure. You know, the way the, the, yeah, so, you know, when you work in the NHS, you see people from, you know, all different backgrounds. Yeah. All socioeconomic strata. Um, and the way people talk about their mental health is different. The language they use, I mean, let alone my needing to figure out the differences between the English and the American vernacular. But okay. I think more than that, you know, the different accents, the different words they use to describe their experiences. I think that is really provided a wonderful foundation for me to be a good psychologist, to know what to listen for, because not everybody speaks the same way or about their experiences. So I think for me, that was that was what was so wonderful about it. Plus, we had art therapists, drama therapists, we had massage therapists on the team, occupational therapists, psychotherapists, family therapists, psychologists, dietitians. I mean, I really got to sit in a room as a young psychologist with all of these people and just soak it all up really soak it all up and so I, I i always encourage people when they're newly qualified go do your time in the nhs even if you want to do private work the nhs is such a wonderful place to learn it makes me think of that phrase it takes a village oh. <laughs> it, indeed it does and indeed it does and I'm thinking particularly, I, I didn't experience any in or day patient treatment, nearly. I had intense one-to-one -one therapy for a long mm. time. Yes. But it makes me, well, it just, it makes me think about how complex eating disorders are in particular mm. and how many approaches can be used. And one approach is not going to work with one person and something else is going to work with someone else. I think that's so important to highlight uh, because sadly, oftentimes what happens is you will go to seek treatment and somebody, an approach that is used by a particular service, and this could be private or NHS, yeah. is kind of put onto the person mm -hmm. rather than the person, the, the, the treatment being tailored to the individual. Um, and I think that is the thing that upsets me the most, uh, because there isn't one treatment for everybody. Now, there are treatments that uh, have been shown uh, again and again to be effective with certain difficulties. And truly, if you've never had treatment before and you're presenting in a particular way, it makes sense to start there. But if it's not working for you, I think it's very easy for services and clinicians to say, well, that person's not ready or um, they're not committed to change or they are, um, you know, they're not doing the treatment. Uh -huh. And I think my view is very much like, well, maybe the treatment's not right for them because I don't think anybody struggling with an eating disorder, of course, there's a part of them that remains wedded to it because it is seductive and compelling and has and provides many benefits, yeah. um, many ways of helping people survive their emotional worlds. But 
it's always conflicted. There's always going to be another part of them that is in great distress. And I think your job as a therapist is to say, okay, well, where is this person in their uh, road to recovery? Maybe it's just about talking to them about what change might look like. Maybe they've never done that. Maybe that's been too scary. That in itself is treatment. And I think that's where we need to be moving when it comes to the treatment of eating disorders is saying, where is this person and where do we need to start to help them move forward? That is a perfect point to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this Food Thing podcast. I am here with Dr. Courtney Raspin, and we were just talking about various treatments for people with eating disorders and agreeing that it isn't one size fits all. And what I wanted to ask Courtney was when, supposing someone rocks up for treatment uh, at a, a clinic or inpatient or day patient, if there's just one treatment on offer or one or two, is that to do with funding or is that to do with the people running that treatment program? I can't think of any other way to describe it. No, I mean, look, I think it could be one or both okay, and many other reasons why. I, I, I doubt that, that there would only be one treatment on offer. Okay. I, at least I would like to think there wouldn't be just one treatment on offer. Uh, but I think that I know that each clinic uh, has its own way of approaching things. And that will be dictated by the, the training and background of the people on the team. So for example, um, you know, our team is quite integrative. We've got psychologists, both clinical and counseling psychologists, and psychotherapists on the team were interested in body-based approaches. So, uh, you know, and, and, and one might say we're, we're a little bit on the spiritual end, which isn't yeah. for everybody. Uh, yeah. One of our psychologists is, uh, is a yoga therapist as well as a yoga practitioner and a yoga teacher. So she integrates that. We have another psychotherapist who likes to take her clients out into nature. Oh. So, you know, perhaps not what you would get in a different kind of service uh, where they're very much about, well, we only go by what the pure evidence base says. So, you know, the NICE guidelines say this, so this is what we're doing. Now, we are all trained to do what the NICE guidelines says to do. Um, so we are all, you know, certified, registered psychologists and psychotherapists. However, yeah. we also have our other bags of tricks. And when those initial treatments don't work, and oftentimes they do, well, we'll go into our little bags <laughs> okay. and, and we'll round out the therapy um, in a way that we see best. And look, I think most practitioners do that, but some practitioners will be very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? will be more limited in what they feel is the best thing to offer and perhaps will be less integrative um, and pull from perhaps only, you know, largely from one approach. And that may work for you, but it may not. And I just want people to know that there are options. So did you set up Autumn Health because, because of all the reasons that you've given so that you could provide something that was mixed and an integrative approach was it lacking for you is that something that you came to the conclusion you thought Do you know what i i think i'd want to offer this 
Uh, you know, I think it's been an evolution, Gemma. I, uh, mm. I think when I originally set up Altum Health, um, it started as just me. Uh, uh, you know, the pressures on the NHS, at least in our service, were increasing. Yeah. Um, and our team dwindled down. And, you know, I had my first baby and then my second baby. And, um, you know, whereas I used to kind of fall asleep on my desk at the end of the day when I just did my NHS work, I now had two children at home right. and they were my priority. <laughs> yeah. And so I started to do some private work. Um, in those days, private work was kind of seen as a, you know, betraying the NHS. It was kind of a naughty word. I think I it's think that changed still stands. now. I think it has changed, but I think it still stands a bit. I think it does, but remember, I didn't do my training in this country. Yeah, sure. So for me, I, you know, as much as I admire and and I st we still do some work for the NHS, Alton does. Um, I, I, and maybe being an American, <laughs> um, I, I do believe that the two can coexist side by side. Yeah. Um, not everybody agrees with me, and that's okay. Um, but when I started. Um, there were many of my friends doing NHS work who also wanted to do some private work, primarily because the waiting lists were increasing just so quickly. Um, we had people coming to the service who were newly diagnosed and were being told they had to wait a year yeah. to access treatment. And one of the only things we really do know about recovery from an eating disorder is the sooner you get treatment, the more likely you are to recover. So that didn't sit well with me and it mm. started to not sit so well with some of my colleagues. So they wanted to start doing some private work. And so hence Altum kind of started to develop because I had already figured out how to rent rooms and how to deal with HMRC and um, you know how to promote. I think I don't mind doing the promotion bit, um, you know, how to, how to think about rates and whatnot and the collection of monies, all these things that you don't need to do in the, in the NHS, at yeah. least on a practitioner level. And so um, people just started to, I, I kind of set things up so my clinician friends could just do their clinical work and I did all the rest. And then over time we grew. And as we grew, I, I started to see the kinds of clinicians that I got on with and you know the conversations we had clinically about our understanding of eating disorders and those are the people that kind of become the family and we are a family here at Altum. Um, not everybody likes to work that way but if they come work with us it's very much about it's very supportive um, and it's very integrative and we have kind of carved out a, a place for ourselves in the eating disorders community. So if you have a, a client, will you will will a client be seen or seeing a number of you? Do you share cases and 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 have meetings. I mean, how, or is it all sort of quite traditional in that sense? Well, I think what you're talking about is what we call a multidisciplinary approach or like an MDT approach. Um, yes, um, and <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that um, look, if you're very unwell. You, you may be too unwell for outpatient therapy, which is, and, and sometimes we get calls like that. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, you really do need to be in an NHS MDT. We are not going to be able to provide sufficient support to meet your needs right now, right? Mm -hmm. um, that said, if somebody, you know, isn't too risky and we feel they're appropriate for us, we do have dietitians and psychiatrists on the team. Okay. So 
Well, you will only see one individual therapist, psychotherapist or psychologist. You may also be seeing a psychiatrist and a dietitian because uh -huh. those meet different needs. And those three people will liaise to ensure a joined up treatment team. And also, if, if relevant, we will be in contact with your GP uh -huh. to make sure that you're staying safe, that the bloods are done if necessary, if you need other physical investigations, that those are carried out and that um, you know we try and stay joined up. And that's from the NHS training. That's what you learn in the NHS is how to work as a multidisciplinary team. And what about funding for those who are many who don't have the finances for private healthcare? It's, it's extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, what we do is we offer a sliding fee. We offer some lower fee rates um, for certain members of our team. Um, but you're right. Not everybody has access or the funds possible to pay for private treatment. And that is a reality. Yeah. Yeah. And people fall through the cracks, don't they? All of the time. I think particularly uh, when they are transitioning between child and adolescent services and adult services. <gasps> yeah. I've heard some shocking stories. Yeah. It's such a leap, isn't it? That it's a big leap. As soon as you're yeah. 18. Yeah. 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 And yeah. people's experiences. Yeah. Look, I would say that London has some amazing NHS eating disorder services, uh, fantastic ones, and we work with them. Um, you know, I think that they, the, the demand is so high, but there's excellent NHS care to be had uh, in London for okay. eating disorders. Okay. Um, I'm just, I've got my eye on the clock and I'm just thinking of a couple of curveballs here. Sure. Yeah. What would, oh, this is a, this is a, difficult question and All right. <laughs> impossible to answer. What do you think the main causes and reasons for eating disorders are? Uh, that is a big question, but I it know. is answerable. It's not impossible. I mean, I think as with any illness, there are many potential causes uh, or factors that feed into the development and maintenance of an eating disorder. Um, you know, for one, you have biology. You have, uh, some people have a, a, a better tolerance to starvation. Uh, some people have personality characteristics that uh, make them more likely to develop an eating disorder, perfectionism being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got kind of biological factors. Then you've kind of got the, you know, influences around you. Uh, I do think that social media has something to say for itself, but I do not believe they are a cause. I think that they are factors that make, it's a factor that maintains. Yeah. Um, I do uh, believe that the way that food is treated and modeled in the home growing up and your peer group uh, is incredibly uh, important with regards to what might lead to the development of an eating disorder. Uh, trauma. Uh, and I'm not talking necessarily about the big, what we call big T yeah. traumas, um, things like abuse, although of course those things can lead to the development of an eating disorder. I'm talking about, you know, emotional deprivation and neglect, yeah. bull bullying at school, yeah. those okay. types of things. Uh, those can all lead to, to eating disorders uh, becoming an issue, but they can lead to any mental health issue. Yeah, becoming sure. an issue. And, and I think that, and I've said this before, that uh, we are seeing a period in history where uh, eating disorders are popular. 
Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. are everywhere in a way that they were not 20, 25 years ago. Um, they've become an accepted way of expressing distress in society. And okay. therefore, you know, you, you are seeing that's what people are doing right now. That's the mental health difficulty that we are seeing a lot of right now. And that will change. That will change in another 20 years. It'll be something else. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. It is. It's a perfect way to express one's distress and yes, melancholy and struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And struggle and lack of control and yeah. all of that. Yes. Yeah. And just feeling generally crap. <laughs> generally yeah well you know it's a i always say you know eating disorders are a solution to a problem they look like the problem but they're not the problem they're somebody's efforts to try and survive their emotional world and they're extremely effective at the start yes i they always work. say that i always say that as well and i say yeah. and sometimes it's really helpful oh yeah you you cannot go into recovery thinking everything about my eating disorder is bad yeah yeah that's not true <laughs> exactly. Do you find as a, as a um, personal question, but as a psychologist, psychotherapist, do you attract a client with a similar story over and over? No, no, oh, I, no. I, don't, no I really don't. I mean, obviously, some of the themes are often the same. Yeah. But 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 everybody's story is different. Um, you know, when you really start to dig uh, and you really start to formulate um, you're going to have themes, of course you are, uh, because the behaviors that people are choosing in order to manage their distress are similar. But the reasons for doing so are so um, particular to the person. And I think that's the joy of what it is we do as therapists, is your job is to help somebody uncover their own story and make sense of that story and make connections. You're helping them to understand why they've chosen these behaviors, why they respond the way they do, so that they can become conscious of that and develop healthier coping skills and respond to their distress in more functional ways. We're gonna take a quick break. Welcome back to This Food Thing Podcast. I'm here with Courtney Raspin. Um, we're just talking everything eating disorders and something you mentioned before the break, Courtney. Well, A, you flagged up spirituality hmm. and that being um, within your practice, Autumn Health. And also you talked about trauma. And um, when I was recovering from eating disorders, I did lots and lots of I can't think of a better word than to sort of say spiritual work. Um, I practice lots of yoga. I saw a healer. I still see a healer. And I mm. think, and this is just my personal opinion, as I've grown older, that lack of, what do you want to call it, spiritual connection or connected with something bigger than ourselves, the kind of greater intelligence that is certainly, in my mind, running the show, I think it's really important and it doesn't get addressed very much because it's not very fashionable. Um, uh, yeah. And also yeah, I mean, I think trauma, trauma, small trauma, not necessarily the big traumas. Mm. It's massive, isn't it? It is. I think the key word there is connection. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's uh, when you have connection and you feel connected, you don't need your eating disorder. Yeah, exactly. And so it's about finding connection. I think the word spirituality gets a bad rap because yeah. people start to 
you know, envision levitation or something. I <laughs> don't know. Yeah, well, and also people say, oh, someone so-and-so, they're very spiritual. And I would say, but by definition, we are. That's who we are anyway. Yeah, so it but what like does it mean? Known. What yeah. does it mean to be spiritual? It doesn't, you know, doesn't mean that you're not, um, for example, it doesn't mean that I'm not a scientist. Yeah, sure. I'm a scientist. I really am. I'm a scientist practitioner, but I don't believe that my my ability to follow and read research papers and look at an evidence base and understand like randomized controlled trials and take that advice is in conflict with my my, my connection to others because I think there are some things that you cannot quantify. Yeah, and this is this is this seems to be this time that we're living in when you have to be divisive, where you have to choose one thing over the other. Mm. And surely it's about bringing components together, and it's about our similarities and our um, and harmony, all in balance, you know. Absolutely, and and you know you might not use that language for it, and that's yeah. okay. Yeah, you can absolutely. use a far more kind of square language, so to speak, to talk about spirituality. Much say, you know what? I really want to make sure I spend time with my children and have experiences where we can enjoy one another. Yes. Okay, one might say that that's spiritual. Yeah, or I want to be kind. I want to be kind, and yeah. it actually, when you when people come to you, particularly those with eating disorders, there's a really overdeveloped critical voice, and when you start to have them examine that voice and move that voice to a more compassionate, kind voice, all sorts of realizations start to happen. If I said to you, I'm going to give you unlimited funds, and Ooh. you can set up. Uh, mm. Eating disorder services for the UK. Yes, <laughs> it's. I bet it's something you thought about. Oh my goodness, you're you're, you're teasing me here. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm waggling the carrot. Um, yeah, it's all right. I like carrots. <laughs> oh, fantastic. What would you do? What would you implement? What would you change? I would set up services some of which do exist already, mm -hmm. but more of them, where you have stepped down care. So what you would have is an inpatient portion for people that are just cannot really engage in meaningful therapeutic change unless they're more physically stabilized. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So and and so you would have that, and then there would be a day patient program attached to that. So it would be a step down, so people could start to take a little bit more independence in feeding themselves, um, intensive therapy around that. Then there'd be I would have a little bit like um, apartments and complexes where people can then live. Right. Yeah. Get some independent yeah. living, but still have supervised meals. Maybe nip you know, have outpatient therapy if necessary, do a part-time day program till they feel safe and able to feed themselves. Maybe they start going to work from that apartment a couple days a week, and then they would be able to step out into the community fully. So I say, I think what can happen is somebody gets inpatient care and then they're out and it's too big a jump. Yeah. Or yeah. even inpatient to outpatient can be a jump. Right. Or And so it's about kind of saying, well, where are you? Because obviously we want people to be able to feed themselves, engage in meaningful lives, stay in the community when possible. So I think I, you're always pushing for that or wanting that. But I think you need to have services set up 
that can accommodate wherever people are in their journey. For me, it's a little bit like raising a child, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. Like I've got my children, they're growing up, they're teenagers now. So they're kind of, they're kind of, you know, day patients. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and every now and then they need to come back into mommy's arms a little bit more, don't they? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> because that's they true. step back into childhood, don't they? Yeah. Um, but your goal is for them to kind of start leaving and leaving. And, you know, you've done your job when they don't really need you anymore. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> yeah. So I think in a, in, in, uh, that's one way I think about recovery. And. Uh, also, a, a culture of, from what you're saying, I, you know, a culture of nourishment and nurturing mm. and support, continued support. Well, yes, and that's what, alt, that's what Alta means. It means to nurture or to nourish. Does it? It does, oh, yes. Fantastic. And, and I think this is all about, uh, you know, I told you earlier about uh, I do love food. I love cooking. I, you know, I love through feeding. That's who I am. Okay. You know, you, you come to my house and it's like a bunker. I'd love to. <laughs> when do I come around? Yeah, yeah, tomorrow. Come on over tomorrow. <laughs> and and I do think that's part of what motivates me to, to do this because I cannot imagine a life where somebody denies themselves the joy and nourishment and nurturance that comes from meeting one's basic needs, yeah. you know, but also then in addition to that, allowing themselves pleasure, feeling mm -hmm. that they're worth pleasure because food gives so much pleasure. And we have so much available in this part of the world we and do. so much gorgeous, lovely, wonderful food. Yeah. I yes. But, but in order to allow yourself to do that, you have to allow yourself the capacity to enjoy and yeah. and and that is such a challenge for people with eating disorders with many of them do you um i have a little personal thing about uh for myself i would i don't refer to myself as being in recovery i refer to myself as being recovered obviously for some people it's really helpful that language is really helpful do you have any mm. thoughts about that I think you need to find a language that works for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really do. Again, there's no right way mm -hmm. to get through this life. There are yeah. a few wrong ways, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there are many, many right ways. And I feel that way about recovery or as well. Um, you know, I have one client I'm seeing right now who cannot use the word moving forwards. She calls it moving sideways. Okay. Yeah. Now that works. That feels safe to her. Sure. Forwards feels too challenging. Forwards feels like too much of a challenge to the eating disorder right now. Sideways feels safe. Fine. We are moving sideways. <laughs> if recovered works for you because it, it makes sense with regards to your own personal experience narrative and where you are in your life, then you should keep using that language. For yeah. others, the idea of being in recovery is helpful uh, because it's, for them, perhaps they haven't, there's the specter of the eating disorder there and it allows them to respect the power it has and keep their eyes open for four moments where they might be getting sucked back in. I remember feeling that actually. Mm. I remember feeling very proud when I yeah. said I was in recovery. I had a friend who was having a nervous breakdown. He had terrible OCD and we used to kind of compete with each other how much pain we were in. I do oh, remember that. Oh, wow. It's a long time ago, but I remember 
um, being in awe of that process of recovering and understanding mm-hmm. that it, it was a big deal? It's the biggest deal. I always say to people that you know, recovery is going to be the hardest thing you ever do. Yeah. It yeah. really is. And I have such admiration for my clients because the amount of courage uh, they have to demonstrate in order to challenge these limiting beliefs of the past in order to kind of live bigger lives. It's tremendous. It really is tremendous. And what would you say, is there a percentage of clients who come to you who don't recover? Who can't? Well, I, I think the statistics are fairly clear about recovery, particularly from anorexia and about a third get better, a third stay the same and a third get worse. Now, oh, to be fair, I haven't looked at those statistics recently, okay. but that's, you know, several years ago, that's what they were. Again, I don't see the severe end as an outpatient practitioner, really. I don't, I don't often yeah. see people who are, are inpatients. Um, but what I will say is that, what we're seeing a lot more of in our practice is what I would call disordered eating. So right. you might not fit quote unquote criteria for an eating disorder, but you're obsessed with your food. You might restrict all day and eat too much in the evening. You constantly think about your body. You can't look at your body without you know feeling distressed. You're not satisfied. To me, this has become normalized in our society and it shouldn't be. Has it it also, shouldn't be. Sorry. Has that also come about partly because of two years of, having to stay home and not go out and no 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 I think I think this predated that um and I guess what I'm saying is when people come to us uh from that or for those difficulties it is very possible to recover (laughs) or for many is the word recover you can develop a healthier relationship with food you can develop a healthier relationship with your eating it is possible we see it again and again and again and it's fantastic And then you can merrily wave your client out the door and say, have a wonderful life, can't you? Well, have a wonderful life. And we're here if you need us. I mean, you know, I I always say to people, therapy is fantastic. And I think you do need a break from therapy at the end. But, you know, maybe these difficulties are a little bit like an Achilles heel or that Mm. tennis elbow. You know, we're all made up differently. And when it acts up. Maybe you need a little physio. Maybe you need to come back for just a couple sessions. Let's just see what happened there. Yeah. And off right. you go. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you can do, do, dip in and out. You can. So ha- where are you in London so that my anyone who's listening knows where you are? We are in Bloomsbury, uh, very close to Euston Station. Uh, and we see people both in person and online. Okay. So it's a bit of a mix. So yes, that's where we are. Okay. Um, I've got two more questions for you before we finish. Sure. I know that you've talked about your love of food. Hmm. I think you're going to like this question. All right. Um, I used to ask it quite a lot. If food was a character, Ooh. what would that character look like? Oh, if food, do you know? Okay. All right. Give me a moment. I need to visualize. If food yeah. were a character... Or it you could know be a what? or anything. And just I want, you want you to There's animate it. There's something about her being. So she's a woman, for okay. sure. Okay. She's a woman, and 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 she's she's a woman, and she's wearing very colorful 
clothing and she's smiling and she's welcoming and she's warm and she's beautiful and she just wants to take care of you. She just wants, she just wants you to feel good and listen to yourself and she'll stroke your hair. (laughs) You shall rub your feet and she knows exactly what it is you want. And she's, she's a little magical Mm. and she's a little bit naughty (laughs) and she's great fun. That's my character. Love her. Love her. <laughs> she can come around anytime. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody likes her. <laughs> yeah. And my final question is, if you were on an island of any climate or any anywhere in the world on an island, what five foods would you take with you? You do have a store cupboard with condiments and bits and pieces. Okay. Okay. So what mm. five? I would take eggs. How would you have your eggs? Oh, always. Okay. Um, I, I, I didn't know I was limited by how I could prepare them, Java. That you didn't say that. I'm just, Part I'm just... of the reason I would take eggs is because eggs are magical. You can do so many different things with them and have a completely different dish, taste, texture. Um, you know, it's eggs are amazing and they're yeah. so good for you. <laughs> I was just being nosy. Go on. Yeah. Do you know what? I'm, I'm into my poached right now, but I do like a good omelette. Ah, yeah, me too. But poached eggs is a whole other debate, isn't it? It's a whole other podcast, really. It is. We should do that. We get the poached egg podcast. <laughs> so I would take eggs. Um, I would take, oh, I would take, so would it be rice or pasta? Yeah, these days, maybe some pasta. I would take pasta. Okay. Okay. Pasta would be wonderful. And mm-hmm. I would probably take spaghetti. If right. I had to choose a shape. Okay. Because um, there's, okay. Yes. Just regular white pasta, durum wheat. Pasta. Regular white pasta, durum wheat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I'd probably take pesto because you can never have too much pesto. Okay. And they work with the eggs. Of course they do. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got those things. Um, okay. Five. I can only choose five. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's one, two, three. I think that I would choose is coffee a food (laughs) yeah you can definitely take coffee how would you you have your coffee always but then Uh, i'd need i'm i'm drinking black coffee right now okay um but i do love myself a latte as well okay um okay and then i would take so eggs pasta 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 on a desert island huh you're, well, you is, can this, be any island. You said desert, be, so yeah, okay, maybe you're in the sunshine. Yeah, any island. I think I would, I would take. I'd want a steak. <laughs> okay, so you've got eggs, pesto, pasta, coffee, and steak. Yes, it's like a restaurant, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you've taken but, a restaurant. It's brilliant. I'm taking a restaurant. That's what I would take, and with my condiments. I could really make it all work. And if I'm allowed different shapes of pasta, well, goodness, I, I'm good forever. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, does, that's does, gnocchi, does gnocchi count? Because then we're moving into potato. <laughs> I think you could have a shop. Amazing. I think I can. Okay, Courtney, thank you so much for coming on this Food Thing podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know your favourite bit from this episode. Let me know on Instagram at This Food Thing Podcast or join us again in the next episode.